Thank you, Rob, for reminding us of those truths. Pray for our teachers and our students as they head on down and that God would give them hearts that enable them to believe and words and wisdom for our teachers, clarity of thought, patience in some cases. Just as a uh, reminder, if you didn't uh, catch it this morning, this week coming, we're having uh, Forest Cliff Camp coming this week, so I think there's um, 75 kids, I think, registered or something like that. Um, I'm looking to Pastor Matt, I think so. Uh, be praying for those. That's all kids are coming to hear, and they will hear the gospel throughout this whole week. So please be praying for that, and that God would do uh, work in a mighty way that only he can work. And pray for the leaders who will be here doing that. Some of our high school, or not our high some of our youth ministry is actually helping with the, it's called ACTS. It's like their leadership and training program. So be praying for those guys as they do that too. Um, and their parents, because that means that their kids are getting older. Um, so please be praying for all those things. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Acts chapter 18. As we continue to worship God uh, in the preaching of his word, just as a reminder, you know, this is a time where we get to worship, right? This is, we worship as we listen. For you, for me, I'm worshiping as I preach. So please continue to keep that. And as you're turning there, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the chair in front of you. There's a blue one. If you don't have one at home, I encourage you to take that and read it. Um, but we're on page 541 in that blue Bible, but Acts chapter 16, or 18, sorry. And we'll be uh, looking at chapter, verses 18 to 28. And as you turn there, let me ask you these couple of questions. Who's that person that really encouraged you? Uh, in your life. As you sit there and you reflect upon all the people that God has brought into your life, what is that, s at least one person, there's, hopefully there's more than one, but there's got to be at least one person that God really used to encourage you in your life, who encouraged you in your faith. Who was that person that was pinnacle to you in the growth in your faith? And I don't think any of us can honestly think we have accomplished what we've been able to accomplish in our walk without thinking about the people that helped us walk through that, that God brought into our lives to strengthen, to encourage, and to exhort us as we continue to go move on through our lives. For me, I've been blessed with parents who love the Lord with all their heart, with all their soul and their mind. They have been an amazing example to me of what it means to be godly. In, in their marriage and as individuals, and God has used them even lately as an example of that. I think of my youth pastor, for some reason, saw some sort of potential in me and got me up really early in the morning for some crazy, dumb reason. Uh, to, well, it wasn't dumb, but it felt like it at the time, because I was in high school, and you know, in high school, you know everything. Um, yes, <laughs> we all were there. Uh, but, you know, we got up in early in the morning, we headed off to McDonald's, I got my BLT when they used to have good food, um, and we would talk and open the Word of God together. We walked through ne Nehemiah together, just walking through what we're learning about who God is through this. You know, I think about all those people that God has brought into my life, and it's here we will see how Paul continues to strengthen the church as he concludes his second missionary journey and begins his third missionary journey, and we also see how God uses a godly married couple that we've already been introduced to to strengthen a young man who goes on to even strengthen even more people. So Acts chapter 18, verses 18 to 28, the word of the Lord says this. After this, 
Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail to Syria. And with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria he had cut his hair and for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left there uh, left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went, and went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the, other, to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, and strengthening all of the disciples. Now a Jew named Paulus, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God may act more accurately. And when he wished to cross into Archea, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. And he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And this is the word of the Lord. Blessed be Let's pray. Awesome God, we just continue to come and to worship you, to make much of you as we open your word together. And Lord, you know the state of my mind right now, and Lord, I just pray that you would make much of yourself right now. Lord, I want to preach and so that you are glorified. I want to speak of you and praise you. And Lord, I can't do this on my own, so by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon to bring glory to your name joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. Amen. So in verses 18 to 23, we see how uh, Paul begins to head home. He's going back to his home base, to the Antioch church there. And after spending some time in Corinth, Paul heads back to Syria. He's walking back and begins to strengthen the church and those he has shared the gospel with. And just as a reminder from last week, we saw Galileon uh, had just made a ruling that protected Paul as Jesus had promised him, okay? But this was a great and amazing promise because it allowed Paul to continue to minister in Corinth and the church continued to grow in that. They left the church alone to continue in these things. The authorities remained neutral for many years after this. But Paul stays many days longer, and just that simple ruling is an example of God's providence. This allowed Paul to stay there, to encourage, to, to encourage the church, to strengthen the church that God was establishing in the city, just as Jesus had promised. It's this sovereignty that God used to, uses to further advance the light of the gospel in the darkness of the world. See, God isn't just sovereign over the church he's sovereign over everything there's not one thing when you come along and you say hey god is sovereign it's not just that one little itsy bitsy part of your life it's all of it he's god 
And we see that here right now. He, he is sober, sovereign even over the authorities of the time, allowing the, to, to uh, grow the church. He is God who created the heavens and the earth. And right there in that first little bit, we're reminded once again of who our God is. And then we're introduced once again to Priscilla and Aquila. And Paul is with a team. He's usually with a team on his trips. He doesn't go with, uh, with, by himself on any of these things. There's people with him right now, just as they have been in the past. But an interesting observation that we begin to see here is that when we were first introduced to Priscilla and Aquila, it was Aquila and Priscilla. This is a cultural thing that you have to take note of. Because when Luke comes and he lists names, or anybody in that time lists names, they put the one of more prominence of that time in the front. So we'll take some time to walk that through in a little bit. But now he's emphasizing Priscilla. And then they head on to Centuria. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we don't know about Paul. Like, what did he eat when he was having a hankering for something? Suddenly we know he went to the barber. But we don't know what the vow is. Now we can come and we can kind of uh, speculate about what's going on, but we do know he gets to Centuria where we know that there is a church that God establishes at some point because we see that in Romans 16 verse 1. And what happens is he comes and he cuts his hair because he made a vow. I would like to think that this is a vow of thanksgiving, of what God has done already this is a declaration for paul because it's a very public thing you know as your hair gets long and people are like cut your hair you hippie you know things like that would open the door for him to say hey let me tell you about what god has done uh, in corinth let me tell you about how god providentially and sovereignly provided in such a way that the gospel continued to grow and at this moment the hair is the, the vow is over so he begins to take some time to cut his hair right there and what this tells us is that Christians are able to do or not to do or keep or not keep whatever they want according to their conscience, as long as it doesn't counter the gospel. Because as Paul was making this vow, it was a Nazarite vow. It was a, a vow that you can go into the Old Testament and actually see, although it wasn't fully because it was supposed to be a vow that was taken part in the promised land, so in Israel. But nonetheless, you can see how Paul uses these traditions to make much of Jesus, as long as they weren't inconsistent with the gospel. And God has shown some amazing deliverance to Paul, and he wants to publicly testify about what God has done. So Paul gives of himself by refraining in something as a way to give thanks of what God has done. And as he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in verse 19 in Ephesus to continue the ministry on in Ephesus, he goes to the synagogue. And just because last week we see how he shook out his garment as he left the synagogue and he literally goes next door and declares the good news of Jesus Christ, which I find is always that humorous thing. But he goes there and he declares, just because he shakes out his garment at that moment doesn't mean that he's rejecting his method or all Jews. His method is still, as Romans 1 says, to first go to the Jews. So that's what he does. He goes there and he begins to declare the good news of Jesus Christ once again. He begins to reason with the Jews. He keeps pointing to how Jesus is the Messiah. He wasn't just some guy who was branded as a rebel who was crucified on the cross and he, he just died. 
Jesus rose from the dead three days later, proving that he is exactly what he said he was and exactly what the Old Testament proclaimed, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that the resurrection actually did happen. And Paul can actually say, and I've seen him. Remember when he lost his sight? You know, a guy who at one point used to go around killing Christians is suddenly proclaiming the good news that Christians believe in itself is an amazing testimony of what God has done. And as we move to verse 20, the outcome here is different than what happened in Corinth as people ask him to stay, but he, he won't stay. And we don't know why he so determines some people think he just wants to get back to Jerusalem to uh, take part in the Passover. We really don't know. But nonetheless, he wants to get back. So he leaves Ephesus and begins his journey back to Antioch. And Paul's determination to go to Antioch, it shows a clear expression of dependence on God to make his return happen. Because I love how he, he, he says that in verse 21. He says, I, I will return if God wills, he says. And I've reflected a lot on verses like in Psalm 2, verses 1 to 4. Why do the nations rage and, and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing. Say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And then, it, and then the psalmist goes on in verse 4 and says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Humanity makes plans, but God says, fat chance. The verse emphasizes that God's plans and purposes will ultimately prevail. And those who oppose him or make plans contrary to his will will be subject to his judgment and his derision. Derision is this action of like just always against you. And here Paul knows that. So that's why he says, if God wills it, I do long to come back and to visit, but if God wills it... The other day, I, I was talking with someone. They said, I'll see you at su on Sunday. And I said, well, if the Lord wills it. In, in the Middle East, this one of the very few Arabic I actually remember. <laughs> but, and, I, I'm not even, and I pronounce it so poorly. But in the Middle East, they, they, they'll say, inshallah, which means if God wills it. Which, I'm like, as a Christian, I'm like, okay, yeah, if God wills it. F for the Arab, it means no. It, it was weird. It means well, if God wills it, I'll show up, which really means if I don't show up, it really just wasn't God's will. Right. For Paul, it was his desire to come back to Ephesus, but he knows that he will never come back to Ephesus unless God wills it. If God is in control, if God is sovereign in all of these things. He understands like Psalm 127 verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it in labor, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. 
He also has already experienced these things as he declared the good news of Jesus Christ in the chapter, chapter before in Acts 17 when he said, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places. Our God is providential and sovereign. And Paul understands that. And Paul makes plans, but he rests in the sovereignty of God in those plans. It doesn't mean just sit around and wait for nothing. But we do understand that as God, that nothing will happen unless he wills it. And there's an amazing reminder for us today with these just simple words. Because I don't know about you, but I get frustrated a lot. Do you? And if you're all like, no, I don't, you're a bunch of liars. We all get frustrated. That's why it's a common word. We all struggle with some form or another of anxiousness because things aren't happening the way that we want them to happen. It's not, and it is mostly because things just don't happen the way we want. And that's why 1 Peter 5, I still have this on my bulletin board in my office. Steph, my wife, gave it to me while we were dating because I was struggling with some anxiousness at the time. It's a major anxiousness. And 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 says, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. And God's word shows me that every time I open it, that he cares for me. And even though I don't know what's going on or what tomorrow will bring, I have a God who does, and he cares for me. So Paul's understanding that he won't return unless God wills it, he leans back even to Acts 16. Remember back in Acts 16, 6, he was trying to go one place, and the Holy Spirit prevented him from going there. So he knows that unless the will of the Lord enables him, he will never come back to Ephesus. And he does. Paul had a keen understanding of God's sovereignty. And God's sovereignty provides a foundation of faith and hope, allowing us, brothers and sisters, to find comfort and rest in the knowledge that we are not at the mercy of some sort of weird, twisted, random chance. Life is not dice. It's not at the whims of some sort of chaotic world that we live in. But we are under the care and the guidance of a loving and all-powerful God. And this is why Paul says what he says, because he understands who God is. He makes plans, but he knows they won't happen unless God wills it, and he rests in who God is. And as he, in verse 22, as he heads out from Ephesus and he heads up from Caesarea, we, he would go for, uh, up to Jerusalem. So when he got to Caesarea, he would walk up to Jerusalem and then from Caesarea. And when he headed down from Jerusalem to Antioch, he goes to his sending church. He's a missionary going back home to give an account of all the things that God has done. That's why we have those uh, newsletters out there with our missionaries so that they can tell us as a supporting church all of what God has done. 
So we can not only praise God, but continue to pray for them as they continue to declare the good news of Jesus Christ in far-off places. So he comes and he gives that report to the team that would be praying for him. What a great way to strengthen the church by telling them that all that God has done. I think sometimes, like this is important for us, especially in Canada, because I think we get so, um, our heads are just in the dirt all the time. And we think that all of our circumstances are are what's happening everywhere else. Right? We get so depressed. Well, God, are you even working in this world? Because we see what's happening in our own country. Personally, the more I read about what God is doing in other countries, I go, wow, the kingdom of God is not being stopped. It is growing. We have our struggles here in this country. And many of you are from other countries and are Christians because the good news of Jesus Christ was declared in that country. So we praise God for what he has done and how that can encourage us and get ourselves out of ourselves and praise God that he continues to build his church. So verse 23, after spending some time there, he's strengthening all of the disciples. And this begins Paul's third journey, missionary journey, that will bring him back to Ephesus eventually. But first, going through all of this region of Galatia and Phrygia, uh, where the Holy Spirit in Acts 6 had previously prevented him to go, he now goes, and he goes, and he strengthens the church by encouraging and exhorting the disciples through teaching and preaching and discipling and answering questions because there's going to be a whole lot of questions. When people become, when God grabs hold of people, he gives them a new heart, enables them to believe. Then when they become a Christian, the questions just like flood. And like, it's awesome. I love it. To sit with someone who God just saved and just start answering questions because it reminds me of who God is as I do it. I love it. And they would have had those same sort of questions. So Paul, can we eat that food that was offered to those idols the other day? Good question, guys. Let's talk about it. Maybe he's starting to establish and organize churches He's living as an example to follow Christ because we know he calls the church to follow him as he follows Christ. So how do we do that? How do we strengthen the church? We do it very much the same way. That's why we gather as a church on Sundays for the preaching and the singing of God's word together. I love hearing the church sing. It fills my soul to hear the church sing these praises to our God, to hear it, to to hear God's word read, and when I'm not preaching, preached. It is a blessing to me, and that's why we gather together to exalt Jesus together, and neglecting this type of gathering means that you miss out on the strengthening that comes during this time. That's why this should be a priority for us, I understand that it's a holiday weekend and everyone's camping right now. That's okay, so don't hear me harping on you. But this should be a priority as we gather. It's why we have smaller groups as we intentionally gather together in smaller multi-generational groups for opening the Bible together to pray to one another, for one another, and with one another, to encourage and exhort one another 
And this, these two things combined are what pushes out into our communities, into our workplaces, to declare the things that we have been learning. So are you seeking to strengthen the church? Are you that person that is seeking to strengthen the church? So as Paul walked his way back to his sending church, he continued to strengthen those he came across, pointing them to Jesus Christ, who is the long-awaited Messiah, who died for our sins, who rose from the dead. And as Paul continued on into his third missionary journey, he ended with strengthening the church. And now we will see Priscilla and Aquila do the same as they strengthen someone through gentle correction and hospitality. And we can see the ripple effects of what happens here. In verses 24 to 28, we see how strengthening the church with gentle correction. So we're introduced to this guy named Apollos. And Apollos seems like a great guy. In fact, we will we'll be introduced, if you keep reading through Paul's letters, you'll be introduced to him again. But we are introduced to Apollos, and he is an Egyptian. And this is when all my Egyptian friends would start getting excited. But he is an Egyptian from the northern African city of Alexandria. Alexandria was a, a leading city, and in, a leading intellectual city of this time in the world. This is where the Greek Old Testament translation happens 200 years ago. This is where the, the giant library that burned down, or supposedly, depending upon what conspiracy theory you hold to, is not there anymore. This was a leading place. And we see this coming through. And we see how the word of God, and so this is, don't, don't be quick to brush this over. The word of God has gone all the way from Jerusalem all the way to Egypt now and northern, the northern African coasts. As far as we can tell, without some sort of formal missionary plan. Because the word of the Lord just keeps going. God uses his people as they scatter to declare the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done. And North Africa will continue to be used by God in church history. A lot of our church fathers come from that area. But he comes to, comes to Ephesus. And we don't know how Apollos became a Christian, but we do know that he is. And he, he's a missionary who heard the call to go and to make disciples of all nations. And he was an eloquent man, meaning that he was a really smart guy. Meaning he was well-educated. That he was learned and cultured. And that he was competent in the scriptures, which means he knew how to teach the Bible. He knew his Bible. He knew his scriptures. He had been instructing in the ways of the Lord, as we see in verse 25, meaning that someone took the time to teach him about Jesus Christ, and now he was going out teaching others about Jesus Christ. When we receive the good news of Jesus Christ, it's not ours to just hold on to ourselves. We receive the good news of Jesus Christ, and that should push us out to tell other people about Jesus. It's not a gift that we get to hold on to ourselves. You ever, when you were growing up, you ever get those family gifts? I never did, but I hear that this is a thing. Actually, we did it with our kids, right? One, one year, we, we saved up our money, and we got our family the Switch, which is great because you can play Mario Kart, and that teaches my kids humility as I beat them in it. But 
it was a family gift. But what happens if, if someone takes that gift and claims it to themselves, right? I think oftentimes that's how we treat the gift of grace. We take it and we kind of make it our own and we don't tell other people about it. But Apollos takes the gift of grace that God has poured out on him, the good news of Jesus Christ, and he goes out and he declares it to somebody else, to other people. He could not sit there in Alexandria just filling his head with all the knowledge of the scriptures without going to tell other people. And let me add you, he didn't have all of his ducks in a row either. He didn't have all the answers. He didn't know it all. But he does go out and instructs in the way of the Lord. What is the way of the Lord? This is Old Testament language for how God requires his people to live. So he would go out and declare that. This is Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. But he had some holes. Because as it says, though he knew only the baptism of John. Interesting. Because meaning that he understood that Jesus was the Messiah. He taught that baptism of repentance that John preached. So when John went around and said, repent and be baptized, baptism was a sign of that repentance that happened. It was a, 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 a foreshadowing of what Christ will do. He didn't understand the second baptism that Jesus commands, which was an outward expression of an inward change. He was a gifted man, but he wasn't perfect. He still had some holes that needed to be filled, and he didn't know the baptism that Jesus commanded after his resurrection, and Apollos still needed to, be, to grow. And what a great reminder that we need to grow in our understanding of what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. We're never done. We're never done growing. And we need each other to pour into each other, to continue to encourage and exhort one another. And also notice that even though he may not have had all the true, all of the things in order, he understood the foundation of the gospel, and that was enough for him to go on and declare it. A question that I like to ask people is, what have you been learning about who God is today? What, what's something that you've learned about him today? I often hear about things that God has done or things we have learned. But if the gospel of Jesus Christ has a past, present, future implications of our life, if the God that we serve is infinite, it means that we should be infinitely learning continuously, forever. You know, when we can't come up with the things that God is teaching us today, it kind of makes me, it makes this impression that we are stagnant in our growth. And Paulus understood this. He continues to grow. He continues to grow in his understanding of the gospel more and more and the implications of in his life. He, he continues to reflect upon how uh, there is a holy God and that we have sinned against this holy God. And because we have sinned against this holy God, we deserve one thing, and that one thing is hell itself. And hell is a very real place. And it's a deserved place. But Jesus Christ sits down from his throne to pay the price for our sin so that his righteousness is imputed upon us so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see the sin that's in our lives, but he sees Christ's perfection so that everyone who is, confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior will be saved. 
will have eternal life. The gospel isn't just something for the past, but it's something for us even today. And Priscilla and Apollos explain to him the way of God more accurately. They are preparing him for a strong and healthy and effective ministry in Corinth. As we see, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And even though he had the knowledge of the gospel, he was still lacking in some way. And this is when we get into Priscilla and Aquila, because they're actually listening to this hotshot guy. And on a side note, I need to be very clear on this one, is that Priscilla and Aquila, if you have observed, as I was saying before, uh, you've noticed that their names are reversed. And often within the culture of Greco-Roman, of the Greco-Roman culture, the husbands were listed first. So why would Luke, who is very purposeful, suddenly switch? And none of what we see happening here is Luke talking about Priscilla holding an office in the church, like an elder. We need to be very clear on that. But what Luke is doing is showing that Priscilla was a godly, educated woman who had a strong understanding of the gospel. And God will use her in the life of Apollos, along with her husband. In her private conversation with her husband's blessing, Priscilla had the opportunity and responsibility to help even a teacher like Apollos in understanding the gospel even more. Just because 1 Timothy 2.12 limits the office of elder to men only, it doesn't mean that there weren't educated women available or that God would use them mightily in the church. And we see that very clearly here, how God elevates this. This is completely countercultural to this time. Priscilla sat under Paul's teaching for five years. She was very capable and she now is part of strengthening Apollos. So in verse 26, we see Priscilla and Aquila, they hear him, they take him aside, and they explain to him the way of God more accurately. And this is why I love the church. We are here to serve one another, to strengthen one another. This is the reason it's important to be in a church. See, Apollos is speaking in the, in the synagogue with boldness. And let me, let me also put this out. It's not like Priscilla and Aquila heard the pastor say something, and, or Apollos, and then once he steps down from the stage, come up and talk. You, you, there would have been a period of, hey, why don't you come over to my house for dinner? Let's have some good food. And it's amazing how food suddenly calms everybody down. Right? We're always hangry. But here is Apollos, he's speaking in the synagogue with boldness, and God providentially has brought a husband and wife to Ephesus where they listen, who know the gospel well enough, who have been taught well enough about things like the baptism by a man named Paul, where they can hear the holes in Apollos' thoughts, and they take him aside and they begin to teach him more accurately the way of God. So rather than embarrassing Apollos, they pull him aside. Maybe they took him to his, their home. And they begin to explain to him the way of God more accurately. Notice that this isn't this couple seeking to correct Apollos. It's doing something that 
they didn't, it's not, it's not correcting Apollos in some way of saying, hey, Apollos, uh, you're not doing the thing that I like. It's something that's rooted in the gospel. This is something that is actually going to hold back his ministry. So they take time to walk with him. They're concerned with strengthening him, not criticizing him. And that's what we are to be as a church. This is a pretty amazing example of how God uses both men and women to explain the word to each other in a private or informal setting without us going against what 1 Timothy 2.12 says. And what is amazing is the example of what a godly couple can do for a younger person who shows promise of future usefulness for the gospel. Now, I stand here as a man who was greatly encouraged by many people in my life. Like I said, I do not know what my youth pastor saw on me. I was the guy who was part of the group that tried to get him fired. Don't worry, that's not happening. But for some reason, God used him in my life. Married couples, how can God use you in the life of a student who may be far from home for the first time? Could you invest in someone just like we see Priscilla and Aquila doing? Are you able to invest in someone like we see Priscilla and Aquila doing? Do you know the word of God enough to be an encouragement and exhort that person in such a way like Priscilla and Aquila did. Their generous hospitality and encouragement of this married couple ensured the church would be better served. Are your homes open in such a way for the sake of the gospel? So for all of us, is the church better served by our interactions, by our hospitality, by your encouragement and your exhortation, Do you seek to be someone who will walk with people and encourage them in the way of the Lord? When people leave your presence, do they find that they are strengthened in the faith or are they more discouraged that they suck at walking with God? Are you known as someone who is pointing people to Jesus? Because Apollos was a gifted man. Verse 27, he was a gifted man. And the church, including Priscilla and Aquila, saw that giftedness and wanted to send them out on fire. So they took time to build and exhort him. And then they like slingshot that guy into the world to go and make disciples of all nations. He greatly helped those, as we see, through grace and deliver and who grace had believed. What an amazing reminder that belief is not something that we can manufacture. Ephesians 2 says that if you are a Christian, the salvation that you have, even the faith that enables you to believe, is completely a work of God's grace. We are saved by grace. This means that there is nothing that you could have done. Salvation is completely a gift of God. And to make sure that Christians have nothing to boast about, God ensures that we have nothing to do with it. Because if we even had like an inch, you know this, right? Like if we even had an inch, we would take a mile. But I come to communion every month, and I am humbled by the fact 
that God, for some reason or another, chose me. I don't know why, but that should do something in my life, right? How could this not cause us to boast in the one thing that we actually can boast in? The radical love of God. The more we grasp the reality of who we are in Christ, how much more can we boast from the mountaintops of what God has done? We are brought to praise more by grace, which is getting what we don't deserve, by the way. And mercy, not getting what we do deserve. And this should bring an overflowing flood of praise and thanksgiving and change how we live. It should change our attitudes. So Apollos continues to strengthen the church as, he, as the ripple effects of Priscilla and Aquila's ministry to Apollos continues to grow. And that ripple effects of what Priscilla and Aquila do can be, continue to be felt as Apollos encourages the church, as he's debating once again that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And let me show you a quick little thing, that he's doing it by the scriptures. This isn't some sort of philosophical argument. He opens up the Old Testament and he says, from the prophets, look who this Jesus is. Look who the Messiah is. This is who Jesus is. They line up. You can't argue against those things. Which is why a lot of the times people just got mad at Paul and stoned him. Because when we get frustrated, we just get angry often. And that's what he would do. He would go and proclaim, like John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. He would declare that that is who Jesus is. And he did it all through opening up the word. So what, you may ask? See, Paul will return to Ephesus for a longer stay of building up the church, but for the meantime, he leaves Priscilla and Aquila to continue the ministry there. All the plans that Paul makes are resting in God's sovereign providential will, but God uses also a married couple to strengthen the church and to cause a ripple effect that will continue to strengthen the church for many generations. I am so thankful for those who strengthen me in my faith. How are you using your own circumstances, your own life stages, to strengthen those in the church? Because we strengthen the one another through encouragement and exhortation that is rooted in the gospel. How can we encourage one another? Well, first, this requires to actually have a relationship. Believe it or not, it means even more than saying, I know that person's first name. It means maybe getting outside of our comfort zones, inviting people into our lives where they might just see some of the dirt that we're struggling with. It means being in the dirt with other people. Here are some ways that I think, I think are good ways that we can encourage and exhort one another. And as a reminder, encouragement scripturally, biblically, in the Christian life is not a, boy, you got it. That's not what we mean by encouragement. Encouragement scripturally is, let me remind you about who our God that we serve is. I know you're having a rough go. 
but let me remind you that there's a God who's sovereign and providential. I know that you're struggling with this, but let me tell you about God who's given you the Holy Spirit that can enable you to combat that, and I will walk with you through this. That's what encouragement. Exhortation is very similar, but don't get it messed up either. Exhortation is saying, God has called you to live this way. You should live this way. But we all do it through the scripture, in light of the gospel and what God has done for us. And we could do that through Bible study and application. Get into the Bible together. Like, open your Bible or the app. I can tell when the last time you opened that app if I look at your phone. I can tell. Get involved in a small group or a men's and women's group. Get in there. I'm so thankful again for my youth pastor who took time to open the Bible with me even though I was secretly trying to get him fired. Pray out of what you've been learning in the Bible. Pray together. You know know what's a very intimate thing is praying together. Worship together. Gather together as the church as we focus on who God is. Mentor and disciple more mature Christians. You are commanded by God to go and pour into somebody else. You cannot tell me you are a mature Christian if you don't have someone who is less mature than you walking with you. You cannot. I harp on this a lot. Because I think I, wouldn't, I know I wouldn't be here if an older man did not take the time to pour into me. If you are older, you are called by God to pour into someone who is younger. Strengthen the church. And if you're like, where does God talk about that? It's Titus 2. Younger, you need someone who's older than you. I know it's great to hang out with people who are the same age as you. I get it. But if you don't have someone who's older than you, you're just flapping through the winds. If you have someone who's in the same life stage as you telling you how to get through the next stage, it doesn't make any sense. That's that's literally the blind leading the blind. So get all into groups. Counsel each other from the Bible. We got to stop talking about how when someone else is struggling, we need to stop using language like, hey, it's going to get better. Because quite frankly, I know I'm young than some of you. But I know that there are cases where life does not get easier. And you're telling someone on their deathbed who's dying from a horrific cancer, hey, it's going to get better. Well, yes, in Christ it will. But not right now. We need to get back into the God's word together. Serve each other. Talk about what God is doing with each other help each other be generous in the same way god has been generous help people who need babysitting let them go on a date because some of our parents need to get on a date provide meals we have people like brenda albie and jackie tot who do this help financially that's our benevolent offerings celebrate milestones celebrate spiritual milestones like baptism encourage each other by pointing ourselves each other how we can trust God in all things because we strengthen one another through encouragement and exhortation that is rooted in the Bible. And how do we exhort one another? The same way. Get into the Bible. Get into relationships with one another.
Imagine what would happen if each of us were seeking to be disciples, which is being a forgiven sinner who is learning Christ in repentance and faith. Imagine if we were all seeking to be that together and then going out seeking to make disciples. How much would that strengthen each other in our faith? What kind of ripple effect would that create in this city, in this country, in this world? Let's pray.